Welcome to this King's Place podcast. This season, we return to our year-long Baroque Unwrapped series with a focus on French music in a weekend of excessively good taste. And I'm delighted to be joined here today by Edward Higginbottom, who directs the Instruments of Time and Truth, and Eamon Dugan, who's actually curated this special weekend. And the day job is associate conductor of the 16, of course. Eamon, when did your interest in French Baroque music begin? It's very much the responsibility of the man sitting on my left, uh, Edward Higginbottom, uh, and stems from my time as a student uh, under Edward's tutelage at New College. Um, we, I was a choral scholar in the choir, and it was there that I first sang uh, works by Couperin, and this really fired an interest in me to go out and explore um, other composers of the French Baroque, mm-hmm. uh, which I did, and it became music that became very important to me. If I felt like it spoke very directly to me. I felt like I had a connection with it, um, and... In particular, the works of Marc-Antoine Charpentier uh, became a, a real interest of mine and a real focus, and it's, it's lived with me since then. I mean, Edward, can I turn to you then as, as the tutor here? Um, can you transport us back to the, the last years of, of Louis XIV's court? And why was taste such a very hot topic then? What, what was in the air? What was in the air? Well, the French were very self-conscious about their, their position, position. Artistically, they liked to feel they were different from everybody else. Indeed, they were. So they had this thing about Italian music. Um, but they found it rather bizarre, extravagant, uh, excessive. And they wanted something more civilised and something which spoke more naturally. And that was the thing that Ludi did. He established this very natural way of playing. Um, the violins always play within the register that the voice has. You know, the violins play like singers. And uh, because they wanted the music to say something. So there's that strain. And then there's dear François Couperin, who was um, wanting to perfect music, as he put it. And he wanted to do that by introducing lots of bits of Italian stuff, like Italian harmonies, into the French diatonic um, melody strain. So his life is one of adopting certain Italian manners. And, that, and that's the sort of thing you see in the music during this reign of Louis XIV, that the French music actually becomes a wee bit less French, a bit more mixed, but still with a very mm. strong French accent. Now, you'll be bringing your, your orchestra in a programme that explores a transitional moment. So in some ways, the first half, where you've got Couperin and Clarembeau, and then you move on to Rameau, Leclerc, Mondonville. Yeah. How will we know something has changed? Well, when you hear Leclerc, you're, you're listening to somebody who's sort of really gotten, gotten the Italian bug. I mean, it sounds like Corelli, but updated. Um, so that there, there are moments in this tradition when Vivaldi is not you know, a long way away. You, you feel that sort of technical prowess, and you feel that certain abstraction... Uh, in in the style, but I have to say, you know, when you listen to Rameau and when you listen to the Monoville, gosh, it's still very French because it's covered in ornamentation, it's mm. covered in in gestures that, that are sort of, for the moment, they tend not to be architectural, they tend to be very sort of sensational, mm. and it's that sort of thing I love about it, um, the way it speaks so strongly. you both what would you make of the statement that it's the dance element that's crucial in a lot of this music even in 
the choral music in in the suites of Couperin. Um, would you would you say the the dance, the ballet? You can absolutely see that in the music. If we look at the the uh, the Litany de la Vierge, um, which is it's the final piece uh, in in my program. Um, by Charpentier. By Charpentier, mm-hmm. yes. He, I mean, he he's changing the meter uh, with each of the sections all the time, and there's a there's an often a return to the triple time and the dance. The music just skips along in a very uh, light-hearted fashion. Uh, it gives it a wonderful sort of joie de vivre, if you like. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, um, it can be a, it can be a slower three as well. The dance forms they're, they're there all the time, aren't they? And just as you know, as you, you find them yeah. in Bach, as well. Um, it's it's always there under the surface. But I was thinking that you know, even in the operas of Lully, the ballet is so important. Well, the, isn't the, it? The, the thing about the Lully opera is that nothing is more important than all the other things in it. it it's extraordinary. You know, you talk. Well, people talk about the Gesamtkunstwerk and Wagner's contribution towards making the everything in balance. Mm. The but the French actually got there before Wagner did. That's interesting. I mean, we shouldn't overlook one of the the pièces de Clavecin that, that you'll be performing uh, in your concert is by Elizabeth Jacquet de la Guerre. And she was an astonishingly successful female composer. Absolutely. Um, at, at that time. And supported by Madame de Montespan, who, who was obviously the one of uh, Louis XIV's mistresses. Yes. I mean, did she deserve that patronage? No, she, she's, a, she's a very fine figure of a woman and a composer. Um, she's a very fine figure of a woman, if one could say that. I mean, there's a wonderful portrait of her. The, mm-hmm. These people who made it, um, uh, we, we've got some fantastic, like Mondeville, a wonderful portrait of Mondeville as well. These very successful composers um, are there for us to view as well. Um, she was a child prodigy. Uh, she worked very hard at her playing. Uh, she was a great improviser. She could go on for a long time, mm-hmm. um, in a controlled and, <laughs> and sort of disciplined fashion, not just doodling. Uh, and she's left us with some strikingly, um, how should I say, originals to sort of insipid a word, really. I mean, music which couldn't be written by anybody else. It's mm. very characterful. Mm. Um, uh, maybe a little bit quirky at times, but very, I mean... Um, not at all somebody who's questioning their competence. A very assured yes. music. This. Confident, yeah. yes. And Eamon, you're obviously going to be performing a lot of music by Charpentier. He was another another figure who was supported by a female patroness, Mademoiselle de Guise. That's right. Who even converted her stable block so that he could he could have a home there. Um she she did influence some of the work he did, didn't she? Because she organised for him to be commissioned and commissioned him a great deal. How what, how can we hear that influence? Do you think and her taste? Well, I think um, within the program that I that I put together, it's it's centred around works that were written specifically for for her musical establishment. So we have um, the Litany de la Vierge, the 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 one for two violins and six voices. Uh, and also the um, uh, the the big motet uh, in praise of the Virgin Mary. This whole uh, Marian cult or devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary is a is a very important part of you know of the era, if you like, and, and indeed back to the Renaissance composers writing uh, works in praise of the Virgin Mary. Often you'll find that it inspires them to write some of that some of their best works. Mm. Charpentier, I think, had a real personal devotion to her. He wrote so many, so many uh, Marian works. Um, and we know that uh, Lorraine de, uh, de Guise uh, 
had a, an interest and a support in, in various convents that were, that were nearby. And we find in Charpentier's works, um, he's writing often for just, just female voices, which is, which is relatively unusual. Mm. Um, so we've included one piece, uh, the Pulcra Es, which is just for, for three female voices. And it, it's possible that he was writing these uh, specifically to be performed at, at the convents. Mm. So you can see her influence, her influence there. Uh, I mean, on a larger scale, she had uh, a musical establishment at, at her hotel, which was which was the equal of of pretty much anywhere in France. It seemed. I mean, it was reported in the Mercure Galon that uh, her musical establishment rivaled that of many of the greatest kings. Yes. So, yes. and that's quite some statement. Yeah. So she had these resources that he could draw on. Absolutely. And Charpentier initially was a singer uh, in her household, oh. and then became master of music uh, thereafter. And I think she was also influential in helping him to receive jobs elsewhere. So she mm-hmm. was, he was obviously someone who she valued greatly uh, and was keen to promote him. And you've, you've got a hand-picked um, group of singers that you're working with, with people from the OEE and also Rachel Podger. That's right. So in this. Rachel is someone I've admired from a distance, admired her, her, her work for, for many, many years now dating right back to when I first bought my, my first recording of the Bach double violin concerto, which was her and Andrew Manzi That's with right. Academy of Ancient yeah. Music. Um, and then I have all her Mozart sonatas with Gary Cooper. And it seems that anything she touches, she makes, uh, it, it's just effervescent playing. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, so the chance to invite her to come and be part of this uh, was not to be passed up. Mm, so she's uh, actually playing her own concert. So she has her own recital well. on the Thursday evening. That's correct. Uh, then Edward's Instruments of Time and Truth on the Friday, and then we're on the Saturday. Uh, and Rachel will be coming and playing with us. I think Charpentier is a composer. He wrote in such a wide variety of styles. You know, we're only looking at uh, sacred church music and, and specifically Marian church music. Mm. Um, but of course, he wrote masses and magnificats and the whole gamut of, uh, of sacred music. But of course, he was writing secular dramatic works as yes, well, yes. which we can't touch on. I think there's enough variety in his works that you could have a a programme of, of all music by Charpentier, should you want to. Of course. But yes. we've decided to stay clear of that uh, and to kind of make this final concert, although it is focusing on Charpentier's works primarily, to make it a sort of culmination of the weekend as well, if you like. Yes. So we have Rachel playing some Couperin, uh, and we've got David Miller playing some uh, Robert de Visset, mm. and, and works by other composers as well to kind of, yeah, as I say, yes, bring it, it together. It sounds really delicious, I must say. And also I see that you're doing a choral workshop, which is sold out. So there Great. must be a real appetite <laughs> for this among singers. Well, yes, interesting. Um, one of the reasons that I came to the French Baroque theme for this weekend is that in my experience in England, it's, it's not as well represented as it might be. It's not music that you hear live that mm. often. And it seemed like a good opportunity to, to try and redress that balance. Well, there's much to look forward to there. And thank you so much, Edward Higginbottom and Eamon Dugan, for joining me today. A weekend of excessively good taste begins on Thursday, the 24th of November, with Rachel Podger's recital. The 25th of November will be the Instruments of Time and Truth. And then we go on to Saturday with Eamon Dugan's workshop and concert at 7.30 in Hall 1. For more information and to book tickets, please visit kingsplace.co.uk forward slash French Baroque.